Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. And this is the Imperfect Buddha Podcast. Exploring contemporary Buddhism at the edge and at play in the great feast of knowledge. Sponsored by O'Connell Coaching. Visit imperfectbuddha.com coaching if you're interested in exploring the themes that emerge in this podcast and engaging with the challenges of a contemporary spiritual practice. So, are you ready for some philosophy? How about some non-philosophy? That's right, this episode dives deep into the work of the Frenchman Francois Leroy. Sorry, that's my terrible French accent. With the help of an Irishman. What an interesting European project that is. Is that pre or post-Brexit? No worries, both Ireland and France continue to remain inside the European Union. Anyway, our guest today is John O'Malarkey, and he's a professor of philosophy and film at the University of Kingston in London. We spend this interview discussing primarily the work of Francois Larouel, and therefore it acts as something of an introduction to you if you're still struggling with some of his ideas. John has written a book, it was back in 2015 to be precise, called All Thoughts Are Equal. And in my experience, it's the most accessible introduction to the work of Francois Larouel out there. But it's not just an introduction to his ideas, it's also a practice. Yes, it's the performance of non-philosophy. And John takes it off in a very interesting direction. He brings in his fascination with film, of course, but also the whole idea of being an animal. That's right, can animals think? What kind of philosophy might an animal perform? What an odd project, you might think. Well, yeah, I guess it is, but it's certainly interesting and certainly worth a look. And if you're interested in the work of Francois Laroel, but continue to find it rather cryptic, this would be the book for you. And, well, the podcast too. Core concepts that come up are the democracy of thought, decision, the real, and we even find ourselves talking about mysticism at one point too, which is a project which John continues to work on with the help of another philosopher, Bergson. I'll leave him though to talk about that. If you're interested in our more philosophical episodes and in the whole idea of non-philosophy, well, you probably heard it already, but just in case you didn't, we have two episodes dedicated to non-Buddhism, which is Glenn Wallace's take on non-philosophy, or rather, his performance of it. That's all the way back at episode 15 and 16. Episode 15 is my introduction to the liberating force of non-Buddhism, and therefore non-philosophy. That was carried out with Stuart while he was still a member of the team over here. Stuart, what happened, mate? The second follow-up episode is 
Glenn Wallace himself, the creator of non-Buddhism if we can call him that. And it's notorious for having bad sound quality, but that shouldn't stop you from listening to it. If you're a Buddhist today, I really don't think you can ignore non-Buddhism. Or if you do, you're paying a price in doing so, because liberating force is exactly what it is. Anyway, on to philosophy. Enjoy this conversation with John. Welcome back to the Imperfect Buddha podcast. Today I'm speaking to John O'Melarka. And John, I'd like to start by asking you a quick question about yourself. Uh, who is John O'Melarka and what do we need to know about him? Um, <laughs> thank you, Matthew, for a very difficult question. And thank you for having me on your podcast. I should have listened back through the other podcasts to see what witty, insightful spiritually edifying answers you're provided with. You really shouldn't ask that kind of question to somebody who obviously has spent 50 plus years overthinking the answer. <laughs> who am I? <laughs> uh, on my identity card to go in a certain sort of 1970s French philosophy. Uh, my identity card, if you're a policeman, asking me, who am I? I am of this person, birth nationality, biographical details, mummy and daddy brought me up in Dublin, Ireland. I wanted to be a filmmaker in the early 80s. That wasn't so easy if you were in Dublin, Ireland. So I somehow got sidetracked into philosophy and uh, proved to be okay at doing that enough. And um, yes, I've been trying to get beat my way back to being a filmmaker ever since with increasing lack of uh, success. <laughs> but I'm okay at doing the philosophy stuff, and I philosophize about images and cinema. That will have to do for now. Okay, well, that, that's a good start. Maybe we'll add a few pieces of extra information as the conversation goes on. Um, I'd like to ask you a similar question about a man who we're going to be talking about and around, and well, kind of two as well, Francois Laruelle. Who is Francois Laruelle, and what do we need to know about him? Well, French philosopher of sorts, born in the 1930s of that time, generation, coming to, in a sense, his first post and publications in the late 60s, early 70s. But about 1981, he develops a type of practice of philosophy, which he calls non-philosophy, or non-standard philosophy, as it later became. And in a way, ever since the 1980s, he's been both a philosopher and a non-philosopher, doing something very different, seemingly within the academic context. And that has made him something of an insider stroke outsider, something of a heretic within orthodoxy, even in as much as French philosophy, famously from the 60s and 70s, was itself, you know, regarded as radical, innovative, anti-establishment. So you've got the Famous figures of, of course, Jacques Derrida, Jean Deleuze, Michel Foucault. But even within that cohort to which Laruelle belongs, he was still regarded as being e even more of an outsider. I wouldn't say that the others were, let's say, playing a game of being radical uh, in order to hold down, you know, pensionable jobs within the French state education system. They weren't uh, disingenuous. But nonetheless, they still kept to a certain fidelity, you might say, to the power of philosophy, even if philosophy, as they were practicing it, was trying to subvert our norms of uh, what it is to be a human being, what is subjectivity, what is meaning, how does language operate. All of these radical gestures, if you like, were being practiced by the, that French generation, but Laruelle went even further in writing in a particular style and also basically saying that philosophy is not the only way to think through the answers to the big questions, that we can look to other kinds of practices in technology, in art, in mysticism even, as ways to answer and explore certain questions that philosophy has traditionally kept as its, if you like, sovereign domain. So what makes Laruelle's non-philosophy so radical? 
and, well, so intriguing for the world we live in today? One way would be in in its practice of what it thinks of as a democracy, a democracy of thinking. So whereas, you know, you might say, unless they're out and out authoritarian, everyone says that, of course, I'm for democracy. You know, it's like condemning sin. Everyone's against sin, whatever that might be. But Laruel basically believes that most philosophers are hypocritical. They may say one thing, but they practice another. They do not do what they say. He's not saying that he's necessarily succeeded, but his ongoing project, which has gone through various iterations, five waves or phases at last count, it attempts to practice what it preaches. It attempts to do what it's saying it should do, which is to practice a democracy of thinking. So it's not about another philosophy of democracy or of what counts as thinking. It is practicing in a sense, democracy within thinking. So a thinking that is democratic rather than a thinking about the importance of democracy or equality or values. And that leads, on the one hand, to a kind of difficulty in in reading his material. It seems oddly written. And there is a performative element and a practical element to what he's doing. So his style is not very accessible. And to say that, (laughs) <laughs> when when numbering him amongst a group of people figuring Derrida and Deleuze, who are not exactly, you know, easy reads either. either. That is definitely saying something that Larawell is difficult to read, and he is difficult to read. And somebody might say, we can get to this, maybe that that, that difficulty is a type of elitism, perhaps. It's a type of way of leading to a certain Gnosticism of knowledge that only the initiates can mm-hmm. engage with, penetrate. And Gnosticism is a term he uses a great deal in his own work. But nonetheless, he belongs to that generation also. And he's not coming ex nihilo. He's not coming out of, you know, he's just this absolute heretic radical. He has an inheritance. He was, you know, highly influenced by figures like Derrida and also others like Emmanuel Levinas and Michel Henri. And that has had an influence on his style of writing. Derrida also famously writes in a kind of strange way. In a sense, Laruel brings that up to level 11, <laughs> so to speak, right, right to the max. It is difficult. And you get into his thinking quite gradually. You have to kind of expose yourself a lot to it. And even then, you know, I've been reading his work for about, what, about you know, 20 years. And I still have difficulty explaining what it is. In a nutshell, what's he doing? Obviously, I can, you know, trot out formulas. It's about the democracy in thinking. But what does that mean? What do you mean democracy in thinking? And then you start to unpack and everything starts to unravel and it really gets to be a bit of a handful. But the more you read, in a sense, you get this kind of familiarity and through exposure and acquaintance. And you have a sense of what he's getting at, what he's trying to do. And it's that kind of notion of, Though I cannot in any clear crystal way perhaps say exactly what he is saying in this particular passage on this particular page of that particular book, I can give you in a kind of broad gestural fashion a sense of what he's getting at or what I think, of course, he is trying to get at, what he's trying to do in in his work, in his writing. That's what I've been uh, doing in after a fashion yeah. for the last few years. And some people say, oh, gestural, you know, it's all hand-waving. I'm using those terms specifically. There is something gestural, use the word posture, a posture in thought. And he's talking about the body there and the stance of the body as as something important to philosophy and the articulation of philosophy. And there's lots of ways in which you can talk about gestural literally as a kind of embodied philosophy. Merleau-Ponty talks about that in his own way. Lucy Rigoret, Giorgio Agamben, later on, they've all talked about gesture and posture. But Laruel really does talk about that a great deal in, in his work. And um, I think it's something to think about. So, for instance, when talking about other ways of doing philosophy through you might talk about physical practices, you might talk about making films, you might talk about performance art, you might talk about art installations, all of which would be types of non-standard philosophy, according to Lara Wells. So the postural, the gestural, the embodied would be very important. Mm. 
It seems to me, as somebody who's relatively well acquainted with the work, that one of the big issues is that if you don't take Laruelle's work as a form of performance or practice, then it's very difficult to make sense of it. It seems to me that rather than describe what the democracy of thought might be, it would be better to engage in some democratic mm. thinking alongside the kind of line that uh, Laruelle is exploring. And I wonder if that sort of links to some way to the, the idea of elitism, because the fact is, if you engage in any kind of practice, there are degrees of experience and ex expertise, right? I mean, you can't expect just to turn up and because it's a democracy, you're suddenly automatically equal to all other practitioners. And maybe that's, that's one way of thinking about it, because from my perspective, that's one way it links to Buddhism as philosophy or Buddhism as a practice rather than just uh, a religious indoctrination, which is, of course, one of the ways in which philosophy itself can be practiced. And I think the kind of uh, insider knowledge or identification with a certain kind of thought is everywhere. And at least from my understanding so far, the democracy of thought is a kind of way of getting out of that trap. But one of the questions that might come up if somebody is hearing this for the first time is all thoughts are truly not equal, right? Especially in today's age of alternative facts and the difficulty of distinguishing narrative from reality in, in very much polarized times. So what are some of the dangers that might come about from engaging in the thought that Laruelle is promoting? And in particular, this idea of the democracy of thought. A common gesture in philosophy is to say, I think there is a number of things going on in that question, and let me separate them out. You have muddled and confused, you've confused a certain set of ideas. Let me, the more intelligent person here, separate them out for you. That kind of thing. That's an opening gesture, which is why philosophers are often such obnoxious people you wouldn't want to spend time with. Are you saying we should end this conversation short, John? Well, why continue on? We'll get to a point in the conversation where, in a sense, and you should, as an imperfect Buddhist, maybe, what do you do when you meet Buddha and all the rest of it? You don't need to hear about Laruel. In some respects, give Laruel lectures to art researchers, artistic practitioners who are doing a kind of philosophy and a kind of thinking through sculpture, through filmmaking. Giving a talk from Laruel's point of view is kind of like saying, what you're doing is great and doesn't need anybody from a philosophical background to explain to you why it is great. So a kind of performative mm. contradiction. I shouldn't just give mm -hmm. the lecture. You're just doing it already. So why do you need an endorsement from a, even a non-standard philosopher as to what you're doing is a kind of philosophy? You don't need that. So there's a kind of strange paradox or contradictory contrariness, even some people would say, uh, aspect to Laruel's work. But... I can hear what you're saying, and that's all, I, all I'm saying is that, yeah, I can tease out two or three things of what you've said. Somebody even brighter will find 10 different things, and, 20, and so it will go on ad infinitum. One can always analyze a position into multi, multiple parts. The one mm -hmm. about, is this democracy of thought leading to some kind of nihilism or perhaps relativism, where anything goes, truth is out the window, well, I think the first thing to say there is that is to get back to what we were talking about earlier about this notion of a practice. When one says all thoughts are equal, you might say, well, what do you mean by equal? This is when I was saying, you know, unraveling and because you could say, well, define equality here. Interesting thing is that Laruel never defines equality. He won't define democracy because definitions are what philosophy, standard philosophy is all about. It is saying here is through my copious research or great insights, here is a definition of what equality is. And it might involve something about whatever human beings. It might involve something about sovereign rights or, or a genetic universal basis to whatever, intelligence or artistic creativity or language use or sociability or whatever. Even assuming that we're just talking within the realm of the human, not something else. If you were a Heideggerian philosopher, you might talk about that everything is being. If you're a Platonist, you might talk about participating in being and so on. Laruel doesn't talk about equality in that way, because to define it as a state, to give a certain, in a sense, uh, necessary and sufficient conditions for being equal, that's a philosophical task, which is to create a position of authority. Whereas, in a sense, this practical or performative aspect of non-philosophy is to dethrone. It is the practice of 
equalizing rather than stating what is equal, the meaning of equality, it is equalizing by dethroning or deauthorizing philosophy as understood to be the gesture in thought which sets itself up as sovereign, as authoritative. That philosophy is, in a sense, the go to person who will tell you what X, Y, or Z means, including the meaning of a human being in philosophical anthropology, the meaning of equality in political philosophy, and so on and so forth. So it is a kind of leveling act, and that act, that performance, is what counts. As soon as you try to, in a sense, turn non-philosophy or non-standard philosophy from a practice into, a, in a sense, a, a doctrine, a set of codes, if you like, then it is starting to turn back into philosophy. It's starting to turn back into a standard position of authority over knowledge and truth, etc., etc. That is a kind of, you know, rather difficult, perhaps, or perplexing, let's say, put it that way, a perplexing position to have, because basically it's, it's saying that non-standard philosophy isn't a position. It doesn't have a position on things, but it tries to take all positions. It's kind of like an attitude to positions and equalize them mm-hmm. in that way. If you start saying, well, to give myself a hard case, you know, you know, an advocate for murder, an advocate for lying, and so on and so forth, are they equal with all other positions, pacifist ones, libertarian ones, or what have you? Is there no right and wrong? It was, where, where do authorities, sorry, values, I should say, come from? Well, I suppose at a meta level, you might say, a kind of reflexive level, in the notion that all thoughts are equal, the only imminent value is that of equalizing versus the gesture to form an authority. So basically, for Larawell or for non-philosophy as I see it, there is an imminent value, but it's, it's a reflexive one, such that Anything that tries to inscribe inequality, that itself is the unequal thought. If there's any inequality in this democratic thinking, if there's any inequality, it is an unequal thoughts. Thinking unequally is itself unequal. Have I bamboozled you? <laughs> no, no. Not at all. What you're describing, in a sense, is is a relational shift, right? There's a certain kind of quality of relationship that's being proposed by this practice that you're, you're elaborating. It could be that. See, the thing is, because it's a practice rather than doctrine, firstly, it can be translated into just standard philosophy. You can turn Larawell into a set of doctrines. And so the book you mentioned that I wrote is a, a kind of introduction to Larawell, but its performance Firstly, because it's basically written five times. It's a book that introduces Larawell five different ways. The book tries to practice this equality by mentioning five different ways you can introduce Larawell in order to basically say no one of them is right, and there would never be a sufficient number that would get it right, because it is, in a sense, a practice of ongoing engagement with raw material. The raw material might be other philosophical ideas that you then take this equalizing or leveling practice to and engage with it in that way to deauthorize any unequalizing thinking within that. It's a kind of universal uh, subversion practice, mm. but then must also work on itself before it itself is turned into a code or doctrine. Or mm. So it is relational in as much as it, is, it needs philosophy to exist in order to have something to dethrone. But on the other hand, really, it's simply the other side, that philosophy is not to be understood as within the history of ideas. Oh, those people who we call philosophers, it's not necessarily just a set of biographies and histories, which has always been contested anyway. You know, who counts as a philosopher historically and even concurrently, you know, is always contested. That's the one thing you can guarantee philosophers will agree on, that they don't agree with each other as to what is proper philosophy. Philosophy is understood by Larawell as, as I put it before, this gesture of within thought of self-authorization, the way in which kind of thinking can think of itself as supreme. So a physicist 
who starts thinking that that the fundamental or, uh, particle that is the be all and end all, that is the origin of the universe, etc., etc., is not merely philosophical in that moment, but in thinking that physics is the only way to understand fundamental reality. That moment is the philosophical gesture in thought. So famously, when whatever somebody like Stephen Hawking or whatever he said says, science doesn't need philosophy anymore. We've got everything sorted. And ironically, at that very moment, he was, according to Laruelle, becoming a philosopher. Yeah, it's all interesting. And I, I keep hearing parallels with the world of uh, religion and uh, with Buddhism too, because uh, a while back, you, you mentioned a couple of characteristics of Laruelle and the way perhaps people relate to him. And he sounded a little bit like a guru figure for a moment, who's trying to avoid becoming a guru figure. And it seems to be that there's this struggle taking place necessarily perhaps or inevitably within this kind of thought and practice because the tendency to solidify and you know claim a position and try to define things yes it's a philosophical practice but it seems a thoroughly human practice too and there seems to be a kind of um how would i describe it um a sense of liberation taking place within this kind of practice right there's a kind of desire almost to be free of the tendency to solidify or adopt a position but surely that cannot go on ad infinitum, right? At some point, people kind of have to hang around for a while at some place or in some location and, and look at the world through a specific kind of lens. Is, from that perspective, the democracy of thought an attempt to kind of not get stuck for too long or to reinvigorate the possibility of seeing things anew? Um, it seems to me there's a lot of potential creativity in this kind of approach. Uh, would that be right? Yeah, I think so. He puts a lot of emphasis on the word invention, that non-philosophy is a practice that is continually reinvented, involves mutation as well. He talks about using models in order to think through another domain of knowledge. So, for instance, in his latest writing, he is interested in quantum mechanics, and, you know, lots of people are Karen Barad and others have talked about uh, quantum mechanics and how notions of entanglement or superposition or what have you can lead us to think about subjectivity, politics and ethics in a new way. Uh, Laruelle's version of that engagement with quantum mechanics is actually to practice somebody who's doing a philosophy of physics, like Karen Barad, for instance and uses concepts from quantum mechanics, like entanglement and superposition, can then use that to rethink themes in identity politics, subjectivity, ethics. Whereas Laruelle, who also engages in quantum mechanics, uses that as a model for writing about philosophy. So the notion of a particle collider You've got these particle colliders, high-speed high machines, vast in size and expense, like the one in CERN, Switzerland, that are used to bring particles, subatomic particles, into collision. And out of those collisions, then you can see even more, in a sense, basic subatomic particles emerge and so a Higgs boson and all those kind of things people talk about. He uses images such as that and superposition as well in order to write about, for instance, Derrida and Heidegger. And he talks about a concept colliding and elaborates in a, in a way which is like, he describes almost as an artistic apparatus. It's an artistic usage of a model from quantum mechanics in order to, in a sense, manipulate the raw material of philosophy. That's part of the reason why his writing is slightly odd. You're thinking, what's he talking about there? He'll talk about, for instance, when he gets into talking about uh, theology. He's written some books in the area of theology and in Christology, Christology in particular. He talks about the quantum Christ. He brings together the figure of Christ and the idea of a quantum in order to, in a sense, collide two concepts from two very different uh, knowledge domains, in order to invent something new, going back to this notion of invention. On the one hand, this use of models, and other models were fractal geometry in the 90s, uh, photography, also in the mid-90s, he's used biological models of cloning, for instance. And then to use that model as another way of 
manipulating the raw matter, if you like, of philosophy, which is his particular, you know, interest. He's trained in that area. So he's thinking about Heidegger, Nietzsche, whoever, Fichte, but using a language borrowed from another knowledge domain in order to invent something new. And that's equality by saying, well, this perfectly, I'm perfectly happy to use not merely as metaphors, but as, as appropriate ways of rethinking and configuring philosophical history from a model from geometry, for instance, or a model from biology. Not to say that biology is now this new sovereign knowledge and, in a sense, reduce philosophy to biology, but rather to say any model can be adopted. So, for instance, in a work I did way back in 2006 now, I used diagrams. I kind of wrote a kind of diagrammatology of philosophy by comparing the diagrams used by Jacques Lacan, Bergson, Deleuze, Merleau-Ponty, in particular diagrams involving cones and circles, in order to manipulate and bring together, in a sense, and collide, using another image, but certainly to um, assemble, let's say, these philosophers and their arguments through their diagrams and through a certain visual lineage, continuities and discontinuities between the diagrams that they use rather than the words that they were using. So that's an idea that's got from a certain kind of visual impetus or visual culture, the diagrammatic, one can use that model in order to configure another domain, i.e. history of philosophy in my case. And there are other ones like that that, that one can go to. I'm, I'm writing about uh, mysticism, for instance, turn of the century, 20th century, uh, hermetic mysticism as a way of thinking about memory and time, and not as a kind of strange uh, side alley, but as a kind of genuinely serious attempt to think about memory and past passage of time and so on. Interesting. Maybe uh, we'll come back to that later. But for now, I'd like to, to ask another question. I've been listening to what you're saying so far. And uh, one question that comes up for me, or maybe as a perplexity is, what impact or what role does the, the individual have within this kind of practice? You know, it seems to me that this kind of thought or this kind of practice could end up being slightly schizophrenic. So how is the, how, how is subjectivity or the individual or the experience of subjectivity kind of understood, if it is at all, within this kind of practice? What kind of impact is taking place if a person is constantly kind of reinventing new kinds of relationships with different knowledge fields. To some degree, you know, that subjectivity is always involved in that process, right? And it could almost become destabilized or, or lost within this immense wealth of possibility and of, uh, well, creative potential that could almost be overwhelming. And, and I ask that in a sense, not, you know, not as a philosopher, right? So if we can, we can certainly talk about philosophy, but we might think about an individual who's, who's attracted to this kind of practice and is trying to grapple with it and make sense of it. But but may get lost in a sense. Okay, so imagine you're interviewing somebody who was representing the ideas of Gilles Deleuze and Félix Guattari, well-known French philosophers, 70s and 80s. Guattari himself, a psychiatrist, trained in the kind of the Lacanian tradition, but then going through a kind of anti-psychiatry moment alongside others. And taking the idea, for because you mentioned it, schizophrenia, for instance, and taking the idea that schizophrenia is not so much in and of itself a malady of the mind, but rather a political gesture. The medicalization of schizophrenia, of course, through drugs and institutions and all the rest of it, can leave the individual unhappy, unhealthy, not flourishing, and very much somebody who is, is not to be envied or, or glamorized in any kind of romantic way. But those two, Deleuze, when they start to work together in Capitalism and Schizophrenia, their major project of the 70s up to 1980, Deleuze, as a philosopher working with the psychiatry of Guattari, says that in actual fact, before medicalization, the schizophrenic in not having a particular identity, but embodying flow and change and constant invention and process is an actual fact, a living endorsement of our metaphysical reality. The metaphysical reality is, for Deleuze, that everything is changing, everything is flux, it's a kind of Heracliton position. 
He's also influenced by Bergson process philosophy. And so-called neurotypical or normal human being who operates in our capitalist society, of course, their job is not to flow too much, but simply keep a certain territory, as he would put it, a stability enough to operate as a functional citizen, a user, a worker, a consumer. A schizophrenic, or the schizo, as they call it, is somebody who is, has not got that ability or has resisted, rebelled against the uh, need of capitalism to be a unit, a functional, stable, territorial unit, and has instead embraced the flow and notions of becoming and multiplicity of, of identity and so on and so forth. So they don't need a cure, <laughs> since their so-called insanity is, as already Lang might have put it in a different context, the only sane response to an insane situation, i.e. capitalism. That is the Deleuze and Guattari kind of answer to the question of too much change and, and we lose our identity. Laruel doesn't have an answer like that. That would be a doctrine, as in, oh, what is a human being? What is uh, a man? And he uses that gendered term sometimes a lot in, in a kind of Gnostic way. He doesn't define what a human is. Are they movement, process, multiplicity, multitude? Are they entangled with other identities? Are they substance? Are they self-contained? Are they self-thinking thoughts? That's a host of different kind of positions from classical and, and postmodern philosophy. He has no definition of the human, but he will describe the fact that philosophers are very anxious to define the human, even as if to define it as process, as opposed to self-thinking thought. Philosophers constantly, as he puts it, harass the human with definitions. This is what a human is. This is philosophical anthropology done the right way, and this is how we should operate. Even to say that man is free, for instance, is itself a philosophical definition. And all he will say is that just as philosophy, in a sense, tries to dominate knowledge, or is the gesture in knowledge of domination, so it doesn't have to come from somebody who's a philosopher officially, it can come from a physicist or a neuroscientist or whoever, but if philosophy is the gesture of domination in knowledge and thought, it is also a gesture of defining what a human is. And all he says is that we have to resist that. He's, now, he's not saying that we resist it by, you know, saying, oh, let's take the schizophrenic as now a new model of what it is to be a healthy, flourishing human being. He says, no, that's because that it's also a philosophical position. So it goes back to that question of context and that is a, a practice of equalizing or leveling that operates within a situation. It doesn't come ex nihilo. So it's in a particular situation, and there are myriad ones, where the gesture of equalizing or dethroning any particular self-appointed sovereign position, that is the practice of doing non-standard philosophy. And it can operate also in philosophical anthropology by resisting any definition of what a human being is. Without for instance, maybe you might be thinking in the direction of, let's say, Jean-Paul Sartre famously said, the human is this being in itself, it is nothingness, it has only existence, not essence. But even for Laruelle, that is too philosophical, because it is based around a philosophy of consciousness, it's assuming consciousness is this negation of the world, it's assuming a whole bunch of things that comes out of Hegel's ontology. So even the seemingly a minimal philosophical definition that you get from Sartre, that the human is freedom, that the human is only existence and not essence, that too is too philosophical for Laruelle. Now, there are three concepts or terms that Laruelle uses that I think are fundamental for people approaching his work to, to grapple with. And again, they can be quite difficult to grasp, especially the third one. I'm going to give you them one by one, but I wonder if you could articulate your understanding of them in a relatively non-philosophical way. Well, when you say in a relatively non-philosophical way, do you mean in a relatively non-philosophical -non way or just a relatively non <laughs> I'm not quite sure how to make that distinction linguistically, right? I mean, maybe a long pause between non and then philosophy, but I mean, you know, not being philosophical, let's put it that way. Because I think that's a useful practice in itself, right? I mean, one of the one of the challenges of engaging with this idea of the democracy of thought is recognizing how 
language becomes quite modular or quite formulaic and we tend to fall into the habit of describing things in particular ways which in itself is almost philosophizing or can't even say that word now um you know trying to capture the world within a concept right so i mean i find it quite useful because i'm a teacher too of of trying to describe things in different ways to different kinds of audiences because it it just makes you a little bit more flexible in your thinking so we'll see how we do with this the first one is decision right which is a core concept to grapple with so perhaps you could give us a relatively straightforward understanding <laughs> and description keep of that. It, keep it simple John. it's going to get worse i'm afraid afterwards <laughs> it's the one thing that philosophical style thinking has in common whether it be the type of thinking found in as i say somebody who's officially a philosopher because they've been nominated that's a philosopher in the history of ideas leibniz was a philosopher even though he wasn't employed in a philosophy department etc Plato was a philosopher. That type of historical designation has within it a set of people, a set of figures who gesture towards putting philosophy or their thought, which they call philosophy, as kind of transcendence of reality. Whether you're historically a philosopher or, as I mentioned, also a physicist or a neuroscientist or whatever, who believes that they understand everything. They have now, in a sense, in their thought, transcended reality. They have the view from nowhere, to use Thomas Nagel's position. Mm. That is something invariant. That's not, it's a kind of unchanging thing that they all have in common. And Larwell calls that a decision. Common kind of trope is to kind of look to the etymology of a term. And decision ultimately means to be cut away from, to cut away or transcend, as I'm putting it also oneself from the world, to cut away, to withdraw, to become a view from nowhere that sees everything as it is. That is decision, and that is the philosophical gesture that believes that I now understand everything. So number two is sufficiency. Well, a lot of these will kind of dovetail into each other. Yeah. But the idea of a, a sufficiency or autosufficiency is connected. So again, the idea that one can withdraw in thought one's position to become a kind of position that's outside of position, that is uh, outside of context, that is not imminent in the world, but is outside of the world, outside of reality, transcends reality is sufficient unto itself. Its own position is self-sufficient in some miraculous way. That miracle is the decision. It's the decision. Your image of reality, the particulars are sufficient. That is the sufficiency of your position. We don't need everything else. Anything, everything else is, in a sense, unimportant. They are, in a sense, accidental or regional, like Heidegger, for instance, talks about being and being as the kind of fundamental ontology, and then other regions of knowledge literally being ontic. They are mere particulars. They are implementations, if you like, if you're instantiations of being as such, which is his philosophy. He talks, of course, as if he's talking about being as such, but he's not. He's talking about his own philosophy. And that's the sufficiency. Every philosopher is only ever talking about themselves in a kind of solipsistic fashion. Mm -hmm. I think we could stretch that out and apply both decision and sufficiency to almost all areas of knowledge, and you, you've been doing that already. And from that perspective, I mean, these two, these two concepts present some serious challenges. And I wonder, bringing it back to yourself, you're aware of this. I mean, you write about this, you teach this, but how about your own relationship with knowledge more broadly? I mean, are there, are there any practical steps that you take in order to meet the challenges that these two provide? Well, firstly, do I do it voluntarily? I read about the method and now I'm employing the method. That would be <laughs> nice and neat if it just works like that. It might be that I am drawn to a philosophy like Larouel's because it seems to me to articulate the way I am in the world with philosophy mm. anyway. I started off saying mm. that I didn't really want to be a philosopher anyway. I wanted to be a filmmaker. Right. You might say, what's going on there? In a sense, if you're spending your time in a philosophy department or you're spending your time in academia saying uh, rude things about philosophy. Well, <laughs> Wittgenstein is a famous example. 
the hubris of comparing myself to Wittgenstein, but I'm going I'm to do it for 10 seconds more. Well, why not? Yeah. Why not? Yeah. So Wittgenstein said, oh, give up on philosophy. And he actually told various students, yes, don't do that. Do this. Leave philosophy. And he attempted to leave philosophy famously a number of times, but kept on coming back to it, both in terms of writing and in terms of institutional home, eventually coming home to philosophy as an anti-philosopher. Now, Laruel is not an anti-philosopher in that way. He's not trying to reject like Russell or others in their way. He's anti-philosophy understood as a gesture of authority in any kind of thinking. So in my own kind of style, posture, as you might put it, there is a kind of self-subversion, self-destructive nature to my thinking, which I'm happy to live with. It's not simply that I am, you know, Emerson, and I am multiple, and I'm happy to be multiple. It's not just being multiple or self-identical. It's just saying things, and not so much contradicting them in the next sentence in order to be just contrary, but not being happy with that particular position. Because, of course, when you do articulate something, it turns into a position. Eventually, it kind of crystallizes or solidifies into a doctrine, a code. And as soon as it's a thing like that, it feels, though you might be happy with that expression at a moment for a moment, eventually, you know, it just feels like a thing. It's dead and you want to move on again and invent something new. And a Laruel, in a sense, gives me a license, you might say, an authority to continually invent and not settle. So I've written books in history and philosophy, on Bergson, on diagrams, on film, as I mentioned, on mysticism at the moment. And though they are good enough books, I think, if I'd maybe would be a better advised to just stick to one topic and become an absolute expert in it, rather than, I wouldn't say a dilettante, but still slightly floating about and looking at new things. Because I do get a little bit tired of just sticking to one thing and becoming an absolute expert in that. You know, it depends on... Personality and character. Personality right? character, the way your brain is wired and so on like that. But I think Laruel, for me, is a nice kind of... Uh, ratification of, of a certain way of, of moving around topics and bringing them together and trying to think of them all imminently as having worth and value, hmm. including part of the last project on Lara was also to think about what it is to think non-humanly and think like an animal or as an animal, as a human animal, obviously, to begin with, but also to speculate on what would a non, an absolutely non-human philosophy look like. And in that way, you know, really stretch the boundary of what counts as thinking, not just in terms of different forms of human culture, but also going into non-human culture. Good. Well, now we're ready for the, the third concept. And this is a, a difficult one. In fact, uh, it's one that seems to send even the most lucid thinker into a sort of tongue-tied, awful linguistic mess. Uh, the term is the real. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I did warn you. And I wonder what we're to do with this. So look, I mean, I struggle with this one. I'm, I'm actually okay with most of the concepts or ideas that are presented by Francois Laurel's work. Um, but this one always leaves me a little bit confused. Or rather, I just, I struggle with it. And then I often give up and I often rephrase it as it's relating to that which is real. And I know that's a cop out. Can you come up with a way of understanding it or making it relatable at least? One answer is that it's just the French way of saying reality. There is a kind of historical connection or context, I should say, to Laruel. Before Laruel writes about the real, you have people like the Jacques Lacan. Lacan, of course, famously has this notion of a kind of triadic way of understanding images and symbols and the imaginary, the symbolic and the real. We can understand reality through images, pictures. That's often how we do it as, as, as we develop from infants onwards. And then we learn language and, and we mediate everything through language and images. What reality is like in itself, we only ever encounter through trauma, basically. Reality in itself is, in a sense, always resists and overflows both our pictures, our images, and our language, our codes, our laws that try to kind of neatly categorize and, and so on. Reality is the trauma, is the violence, death being one, for instance, example, that makes our linguistic and imaginary categories and codes break down. When it does interrupt, it is a kind of glimpse of the abyss, if you want. And some of that way of thinking of the real 
goes back to the German philosopher Immanuel Kant and this idea that basically reality as it is in itself, we can only infer certain things about it, but we cannot experience it. The Lacanian twist that others have popularized, like Slavoj Žižek, is that in actual fact, no, we can experience the real. It is experienced in trauma and violence and and, and those kind of eruptions into uh, our language and and imagery. Larawell would say that, on the one hand, against Kant, he does not think that there is a kind of a duality of reality in itself. Everything is always already part of the real, including this conversation, including my images and thoughts of it. We cannot transcend the real. That's what philosophy as he puts it, hallucinates. Philosophy is the hallucination within the real of a part having a glimpse of the whole, that it can somehow infer the whole, think the whole, in some kind of autosufficient manner. So Kant said you can't experience the whole, the real, the noumenon, as he put it, the thing in itself, but you can infer certain things about it using a kind of transcendental logic. Whereas Laruel is saying everything is the real already, everything is in the real in such a way that no one part can ever step out of it and see the real as such. So it's a kind of, as I tried to understand, it's a kind of part-whole thing going on there, that parts are parts and they can never be an absolute. Uh, They never have a grasp of the whole. And there's a kind of Bergsonian thing in my background there that even the whole itself is becoming. And so these parts and wholes should be thought of as processual as well. Mm. Though that's far too metaphysical and a kind of process metaphysics for somebody like Laruel, it's far too much trying to demarcate and describe what's going on. The main thing is that for him, the real is always on the one hand, completely, yes, foreclosed to thinking, as Lacan, Lacan might say, but only because we are already a part of it. Everything is already real. And that's where you get this notion of a democracy. Hmm. So it seems like this conceptualization of the real or reality Bilaruel is basically a, a means for understanding how to do non-philosophy better, because this whole idea that we're immersed in the world to some degree and we can't step outside it and capture mm. it is, is clearly and obviously in service to the kind of thought and practice he's encouraging. But also, I think it's a nice um, it's a nice way of recovering possibility beyond this idea that reality can only be experienced through trauma and violence, mm. which. I think it's an odd concept to be carrying on today. Um, I kind of get it, psychologically speaking, this disruption of our models or our conceptualizations of the world that tend to keep us apart from it in a sense. But uh, it seems to me we might simplify the whole thing and just say, you know, we, we are fully immersed in the world. Everything that's part of the world is real and we can't hope in any way to capture the totality of it. Yeah, I think I think that's right. Yeah, exactly. To overemphasize what is, you know, still an anthropocentric notion of value, and i.e. something that traumatizes me, mm. is traumatic, of course. To think that this is the key to reality is to basically inflate it into a kind of something transcendent, when in fact, it's just possibly whatever it might be, violence, accidents, death, etc. Those are all traumatic. One person's trauma is another person's just a get over it kind of situation. Or opportunity, right? Or an opportunity looking at COVID-19. COVID-19 is, on one level, obviously awful, terrible disease that has taken a huge toll on humans. Quickly enough, during lockdown in various environments and situations, people were saying, actually, in fact, you know, the lockdown has actually helped a lot of wildlife regain rewilding certain territories, it's reduced the amount of contamination in the atmosphere, etc., etc. So it's a kind of strange flipping of the situation. Of course, for us and for personal situations, death by whatever cause, accident, natural, etc., is traumatic, is terrible. But to valorize that as somehow ontological, as the key to being, seems to be rather undemocratic. For instance, just taking life on Earth. Most life on Earth is unicellular, not even multicellular. So the question of life and so on, death, (laughs) understood in that kind of, oh, here comes a bus to mow me down or a disease to kill me, is rather uh, biased, shall we say. 
Although it's a kind of bias that I'm quite fond of, I'm afraid. Of course, yeah, you're right. you should be. So if you're looking at the big picture, so to speak, and trying to, hmm. trying to think, well, the real, what's involved in the real, it involves you, me, this laptop, unicellular, COVID. It's all in there. And we've all got to play along nicely. We don't, of course. But if you're trying to think through this as real, think of this, all of this is real. None of it is a hallucination. None of it is a mistake. None of it is an error. None of it is less real. Those are all philosophical gestures and decisions. How, you know, how do we tackle it? And I'm not saying, oh, I've got an answer. It probably creates more problems than a nice, neat philosophical answer mm, mm. would. Again, if we're looking at all this as a practice, um, at least it gives us uh, quite a lot more wiggle room to actually explore and uh, look at possibilities rather than just get trapped in another act of, you know, trying to capture the world through a given philosophy or religion, whether it's Buddhist or otherwise, or or the religion of trauma and fragility, which is obviously uh, pretty strong at present. But we're running out of time here, and I've still got a couple of questions I would like to ask you. So look, um, you've mentioned animals, and obviously that's a big part of your book, All Thoughts Are Equal, but I'd like to ask a very specific question, and maybe it will relate to that or not. What do you think is the, the most important, or one of the most important contributions your book makes either to Laurelian thought more broadly or, or the world at large? <laughs> it's kind of like the first question I asked you, right? You know, who is John? <laughs> it gets a lot off my chest. Um, so <laughs> okay. it's a kind of coming together of thoughts that I've been having for 10, 15 years. And in a sense, it's getting those ideas and explaining them to myself. Mm. Firstly, and that sounds extremely narcissistic. Uh, which it probably is to a degree. And and without going the whole hog, Jean-Luc Godard said at one point that one makes a film only for three or four other people, really. But in terms of the demographic, what kind of reader are you hoping to explain these ideas to? It's you and your alter egos, of which you might have three or four. As in, I, this kind of person, I would like to be able to communicate these thoughts to, because I'm also communicating them to myself by writing them down. And yeah, it's kind of a well-known thing to say, platitude almost, that it's not as though you just have the thought and then you write it down, you write it up. The actual writing, formulating and, and, and editing actually crystallizes and informs the thought, changes the thought. So you start to understand in the writing of a book like that, you start to understand what you were trying to say, such that by the end of the book, you finally understand what the book was about. Hmm. So firstly, in getting something out of me, <laughs> and into the world, in a sense, was a type of learning. I was learning as I write more and coming to a certain understanding. Um, so I'm still, I'm still a relative authority, I'll have to say, using that term, uh, informed, informedly. Uh, I am a relative authority on Larawell, whatever that might mean, but it's an ongoing process, if you like. And uh, writing the book on Larawell, even as much as it's got an experimental format five different introductions using movie editing and all sorts of film technological aspects as its model for introducing. It's still a kind of codification of Larawell that I've got to both use and get beyond afterwards in, in doing other things with his work. So it's got a value. I think it's clear. It has a kind of feels clear. People say that oh, I like reading it because Larawell is really hard to understand, so I like reading your book. It makes it clearer. And I kind of take that as a compliment, but then I worry <laughs> that maybe that's a problem. <laughs> On the other hand, you don't want to simply bamboozle people for the sake of it. That's, that's a terrible, disingenuous, inauthentic way of living. On the other hand, is the, the, there is something difficult in, in what you're trying to express something even mysterious in what you're trying to express is, is fundamental. Because after all, you are, in a sense, in as much as you're trying to express what somebody else is saying about reality, and even if we can't talk about the real, it's, in a sense, not so much ineffable, but this is a phrase um, I've borrowed from Anthony Paul Smith and uh, Nicola Rupchak. It's multiply effable. It can be spoken of in many different ways equally. But even to say that in that kind of pluralizing gesture, which all sounds very good and hooray for democracy and all the rest of it, you're saying something fundamental about reality. 
and there's a hubris there, you know, I think to myself, well, this is not meant to be a kind of formula where, okay, we're all now happy. This is what reality is. It's plural. It's democratic. It's multiply effable. Let's all go, go home kind of thing. If the book is both clear, but at the same time leaves you scratching your head and, and living with a mystery and a difficulty that hasn't been answered, but rather just articulated in a new way that uh, is satisfying for a while, then that's the kind of thing I hope the book succeeds at doing. Okay, great. Well, look, um, I'd like to ask two things, and maybe they're related, and this would be the last question. And I'll put them together so you can kind of take it as it comes and do what you will with it. Um, I'd, like, I'd kind of like to know really where you're going with mysticism. You've mentioned it on several occasions throughout the conversation, and obviously mysticism has a role within Buddhism too, or rather this idea of the mystic. Um, and effable, you mentioned that word too, and various other, let's say, tropes or, or, or features of mysticism come up within the Western attempt to make sense of certain uh, traditions of Buddhism. Uh, we also know as well that mysticism has a bad rap generally these days, uh, or mm. continues to to receive such. Um, so I wonder how you're going to deal with all of that too. But the two questions specifically are, are um, where are you heading next? Well, partly that's into the realm of mysticism. And where do you think non-philosophy is heading to next as well? So maybe you can bring those two together as uh, as the final part of this conversation today. Just do the second aspect first. There's a good deal of interest coming to Laruel from people work, working in both philosophy departments, a kind of French, Franco-German continental inclination, but also in particular aesthetics, philosophy of art, art practitioners. There's that engagement. And I think we'll see more and more work done. I've supervised a few PhDs that are engaging with Laruel, but not so much by, you know, introducing or describing or analyzing his thoughts in that idiom of philosophy, but rather through their own genre, so to speak, in sculpture, in visual culture, in painting, and so on. That's an interesting development, as well as some people in philosophy departments writing about Laruel and art. Interesting uh, publications coming out in that way. So to go back then to my own we enterprise, like Laruel writes sometimes in, in, as a kind of what he calls a Gnosticism, a kind of knowledge. And there's a kind of almost Gnostic theme running through his work in this kind of notion of the human or man, as he puts it, which has fallen into philosophy, a kind of Manichaean fall into philosophy and non-philosophy in an attempt to reascend, <laughs> remount the slope we have descended into. It's a strange thing. It's, it's a model of thought. Again, it's not, I think, to be taken as, oh, this is his genuine view of what reality is like, some kind of Manichaean or what have you, duality. It's a running theme, a model that goes through his work. More interesting to me is his usage of the term mysticism and, and the ordinary. He talks about an ordinary mysticism and an ordinary Christ as well when he's talking about Christology. And I'm interested in this notion of the ordinary. I've written on things like ordinary time travel, for instance. So you've got extraordinary time travel, which is depicted in science fiction literature and film, and usually involves a machine and you go back a thousand years, or you go ahead a thousand years, or what have you. Ordinary time travel might be a way of looking at memory, dementia, prevision, and thinking of those as not merely mental time travel. They're often depicted as, oh, forms of mental time travel in psychology studies and so on and so forth. We travel in our own biographical time. Now, Bergson was interested in mental time travel. He's interested in memory. But he regarded memory, so-called mental time travel, as actually a part of a larger whole. In principle, the very fact that we can travel in time through memory and prevision, uh, forecasting, prediction, is itself in a kind of part-whole relation, a glimpse of some more fundamental processual reality. That namely, when we remember the past, it's more, as he would put it, the past remembering us. So he flips it from... The mental being uh, merely some sort of uh, simulacrum of real-time travel, as depicted in science fiction, with a machine. That, in fact, no, mental time travel is a part of a larger kind of real-time travel that is, in principle, possible. Uh, he doesn't think you can travel back a thousand years <laughs> through just effort, so to speak, of memory. But here's the, the interesting thing about Bergson. 
he comes from an interesting family. He's not actually French, for instance. Everyone thinks of him as Bergson, the great French philosopher, does not drop a French blood in Henri Bergson. He's of Polish, Irish, English heritage. His family happened to be in Paris when he was born. Then they went back to England and left him there to finish his studies. He was a kind of brilliant young student. They left him uh, at the age of 10 or so to finish his French studies. They went back to England and uh, where the rest of his family, brothers, sisters grew up and he would visit them in the summer. Around the age of 18, he became a naturalized French citizen and carried on in his philosophical career, writing about famously, you know, memory, uh, the Ilan Vital, vitalism, and being, you know, this world-famous uh, philosopher. But his sister, Mina Bergson, she, on the other hand, had an alternative celebrity that is now little known of, but she was with her husband, eventually the head of a hermetic order of the Golden Dawn. Hmm. And she was a practicing occultist with a huge number of members, WB Yeats famously one of them. She was moved to Paris in the 1890s and practiced her own mystic occult rites and rituals alongside Bergson in, who was based in the Collège de France by 1900, giving lectures. He was about memory, about duration, about time, while she was actually practicing things such as the rites of Isis, which was a way of invoking multiple gods, deities, goddesses, uh, from thousands of years past, invoking them through performance and ritual and mystic practices involving images and all sorts of theatrical and artistic and imagistic mental manipulation, so to speak, which were all part of the Golden Dawn uh, set of practices. So she was doing this alongside her brother. They never really acknowledged each other's existence, as far as even though they lived close to each other, but they were doing an interesting, in a sense, correlated activity. So you can say hers is a mystic time travel and his was a kind of ordinary mystic time travel. But they do have a kind of part-whole relationship. And I'm kind of looking at their biographies, looking at what writings she left behind. And not saying that, you know, she took his ideas or that he took her ideas. But there are some really interesting correlations between what they're doing on different scales. Um, her in the kind of seemingly Looney Tune world of, of occultism. His in the uh, bona fide a respectable world of academic philosophy. But both of them, in their own way, saying similar things about time, about the mind, that are extremely radical. Hmm. Interesting project. Okay, great. So look, John, we, we're coming right to the end. Um, we've spoken a little bit about your book, and I just want to re recommend it for the same reasons that you mentioned, even if you're not so happy with them, that it is really lucid. And it's a great way of engaging with the thought of Francois Laruelle and non-philosophy. And it's quite clear as well in the book that you are performing non-philosophy as you go along, which I think makes it um, not just an introduction to Laruelle, but a kind of a way of tasting the kinds of possibilities that, that come about when somebody uh, engages with it as a heuristic. So thanks for that. All thoughts are equal. That's the book. All the best with your future projects and with the COVID situation, John. Great. Well, yes, thanks for having me on, Matthew. Good, good luck and good health to you as well. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. -ba -ba.